Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark 13, 1, 1 through 13. God's word from the New Testament, Mark 13, God's word. As he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they drag you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, and say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So even though we live in pretty cushy times, we know that life is hazardous. And so we equip ourselves with safety skills and coping abilities. From crossing the street to riding bikes, we know not to be careless. Financial stewardship and security are indispensable. We educate ourselves on healthy eating habits and physical activity, and the list goes on. Yet sometimes we can get so caught up in physical and world safety that we forget the need for spiritual security. We also need to protect our souls. This includes the moral protection of to avoid falling into licentious ways, and it also incorporates theological discernment. We need to mature in the truth of God's word so that we can filter out the world's lie of which there is no shortage. And one of the theological one area of theological discrimination we have to exercise deals with the end times and our Lord's second coming. Thus, as Jesus sits down on a mountain, he lays out his wisdom and grace for us to endure in him until the end. So after a long day of teaching in the temple, it's time to get out of Dodge. Back in chapter 11, Jesus set up the pattern of spending the night in Bethany on the backside of the Mount of Olives and then filling his day in Jerusalem and the temple. And he's sticking to this habit as he makes his exit from the temple out towards the Mount of Olives. Though if you've ever spent time touring a grand piece of architecture, then you know how awe-inspiring it can be. 
massive marble pillars, sweeping buttresses, mosaic arches, and vaulted pinnacles that seem to touch heaven. The majesty of it all fills you with wonderment. Well, this bug has bit one of the disciples. As they saunter out of the temple, its glorious and massive beauty steals the disciples' breath away. Teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And this disciple was not wrong. King Herod constructed and reconstructed and expanded the temple kind of beyond amazing. Its massive side size was surrounded by marble columns. Some of its gates were covered in gold that shone like the sun at dawn. Sharp spikes gilded in white gold crowned its roofs. And the foundation stones are mind-boggling huge. Some of the largest stones, which are still there to this day, measure a 45 feet by 11 feet by 16 feet and weigh over 600 tons. A single stone. Herod's temple was a wonder of human architecture. Its beauty was stunning. And so this disciple gawks and drools. For this colossal edifice was not just another wonder of the ancient world, but it was the temple of the whole of the one true God. This was the holy center of their covenant life and worship. Here, atonement bubbled up. Here, sweet communion with the Lord was found. All that was holy and good and everlasting was housed in this resplendent and dazzling monument. Our Lord's response, though, was not what this awestruck disciple was expecting. Yeah, these buildings are pretty great, but they're all coming down. Every last stone will be touched by destruction. Jesus predicts in no uncertain terms the destruction of this holy and grand temple. He signaled this earlier with the cursing of the fig tree and by his stopping worship when he overturned those tables. But now he comes out and declares it frankly. What is delicious in man's eyes is rotten in God's. And as you can guess, this destruction announcement would be a coronary in a glass. This is enough to make your eyes roll back in your head and to unleash a wave of violent or depressive emotions. Indeed, this remark actually becomes a charge against Jesus that helps to send him to the cross. The priests will murder Jesus for merely saying things against God's temple. Jesus' call of doom gives the disciples their heart spiritual arrhythmia. Thus, they completely they complete their short hike now out to the Mount of Olives, which gives them a picture-perfect view of the temple. As some of you know, the summit of the Mount of Olives is higher than the Temple Mount, and it sits just east across the Kidron Valley. They have a scenic and aerial view of the entire temple complex. And when our Lord has a seat, the four disciples come to question him about his prediction. Peter, James, John, and Andrew were the four most prominent and leading apostles, and so they represent the whole apostolate. And you can tell 
that they're all hot and bothered, for they drop all politeness and sling an order at Jesus. They say, tell us. The only time an inferior can command a superior is in an emergency, and their faith feels like it's in crisis. Though, at least they don't question the truth of Jesus' word, but they do need some answers. They file for two of them. First, when? When will this destruction happen? Give us a date and time and be specific, for we need to mark it on our calendars. Now, this makes sense. If there's going to be a massive upheaval and ruin, it's good to know when. Yet, if you think about it, arrival times is not something our Lord is very generous with. God makes us lots of grand promises, but he rarely discloses the when. He did tell Abraham that his kids would be 400 years in Egypt. He said 70 years of exile. But most of his promises do not have a time stamp. Instead, we are called to wait upon the Lord. We have to trust in his timing, which God often does not share with us. To ask when, then the disciples are being bold. Secondly, they request a sign for when this destruction is about to go down. This is a warning alarm before the destruction so that you know that it's near. And yet, if you think about it, this second question is a bit redundant. If you know the exact date of something, you don't really need a sign that it's drawing near. If the event is scheduled for November 10th, why get a sign in October? Well, such a sign is a nice reminder in order to get away. Yes, the sign will give them time to avoid all the loss and suffering that will come with the destruction. Unspoken but clearly expressed, the concern here for the disciples is to miss the tribulation. Tell us a sign so that we don't have to taste this bitter pill. Okay, pain is coming, but how do we get out of it? And with these uh, two gruff questions lodged, Jesus remains seated to give his answers. So as we've seen, Jesus doesn't limit himself to the specific question. He can answer or not answer. He can fix the question or answer the correct question, or he can chide a bad question. And this issue we should keep in the fore of our minds as our Lord gives his lengthy response to these two questions. And sure enough, the first word out of our Lord's mouth is beware. Pay attention, caution, be alert. This is a call for discernment, for the need for wisdom and alertness, for things will not be as they seem or look to be. So he tells us to beware of deception. Watch out for those who would lead you astray. For, as he goes on, many will come in Christ's name. They will even claim... To be Christ, I am he, and the many will deceive many. Jesus asserts that there's going to be no shortage of imposters and fakes. Charlatans will claim to be speaking for Christ. Tricksters will pretend to be Jesus, and they will speak a counterfeit truth. 
Many will masquerade behind the mask of Jesus. They will make a pretense of caring about the church, and they will feign to be all about the truth. Pseudo-Christ, false teachers, and sham prophets will thrive in large congregations. This is what the disciples should be keenly on guard against. Of course, how does one escape the snare of deception? For a counterfeit to be successful with many, it has to be a good one. Well, the phony lookalike is only exposed by intimate familiarity with the truth. We need to know the true Jesus. His gospel and teachings must be like the back of our hand. Our knowledge of Christ must have the confidence of correctness. This isn't arrogance, but it's the assurance that you know the real Christ and gospel, and there's no doubts about it. Though in another way, this call to beware of deception and deceptive fakes is a summons to inaction or to stay where you are. Being founded upon Jesus, do not move. Do not go chasing the new and the novel, the emotional and the enthusiastic. Indeed, our Lord tells us to have a godly skepticism. Don't be drawn away by every shiny new preacher. The lie that wants to lead you astray will feign piety, truth, and zeal. It gets you by being the best forgery that it can be. Thus, gullibility is a folly. Verify first according to the truth, and then trust. Keep your wits about you. Do not let the rationality of Christ's truth be taken by the emotional and sentimental. This is why we have a confession and why we march through the whole Bible. For this is the refuge of Christ's truth that keeps us from the deception of the false church. Indeed, these imposters hail not from other religions or even the world per se, but they arise in the church. They wear the costume of Christianity, hence the urgency and diligence to be aware of deception. Though at this point, our Lord hasn't mentioned the message of the forgeries. How will they deceive? Well, he teases this out in verses 7 and 8. There will be wars and headlines of battles. Nations will fight other nations and kingdoms will challenge other ones. Earthquakes will rumble from place to place and famines will devour. Yet what do these turbulent events mean and how do they relate to the Christ imposters? Well, our Lord takes a page out of the Old Testament prophets here. He refers to a pervasive message and theme found in nearly all of the Old Testament prophets, which is the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord was when God came in his terrible glory to judge Judah, Judah, destroy the temple, and then his wrath would spill over to the nations. And part of the convulsions of the day of the Lord were wars, earthquakes, and lethal famines. The creation shook at the fury of the Lord's presence. This means that the hucksters will preach the wars and famines as if they're the end. This is how they masquerade as Christ 
they fake his second coming. And in their sham, they'll cite the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, wars and quakes signal the end. Thus, I am Jesus, and this is the final day. Of course, if you know history, how truthful our Savior's prediction was. For nearly every time some disaster happens, someone in the church stands up and predicts the end. And he does to whip people into fear. We have a current example of this in the last few months. One kingdom invaded another in Eastern Europe, and armed with the Old Testament, preachers have been trending on how this spells the end. But it's all hogwash. Don't believe it. For our Lord here takes the imagery of the Old Testament and teaches us how to read it correctly. He mentions these Old Testament features of the day of the Lord and says, it's not the end. These are only the beginning of the birth pains. He takes the Old Testament as signs of the day of the Lord, and Jesus turns them into non-signs. Quakes and famines do not mark the end. They say that the end is, is in view, but they're not the end. Thus, Jesus takes the final day signs from the Old Testament, and he turns them into normal providence. For as you know, there's nothing more mundane and humdrum about history than battles and famines. These are a normal facet of life on this brown and blue orb that we call Earth. Therefore, Jesus removes any dating value of them. We cannot date the end by wars or the Richter scale. He also calms us not to fear. Don't fret, he says, for these are necessary. Frauds preach the headlines to pour fertilizer on your fear. The sky is falling. But your Lord and Savior says about droughts, superstorms, and armed conflicts, your faith has nothing to fear. They are part of the last days, but they are not the end. Counterfeits make you more afraid, but the truth of Christ calms, comforts, and makes you braver. The lie terrifies, but the truth gives you courage. And our Lord does this by telling us like it is, so that there's no surprises, which he continues to do. Next, Jesus repeats the call to beware, to pay attention, and to protect, verse 9. But this time, he tells us to beware of ourselves. Protect yourselves. Pay attention to the dangers that creep up inside of you. Guarding against deception makes us look outward, but guarding yourself turns us inward. Though this is not some modern therapeutic navel-gazing, rather it's preparing ourselves for hardships, particularly persecution. As he lists off, they will charge you as criminals before councils, flog you in synagogues, and arraign you before kings and governors. Persecution will become will come from the Jews and from the Gentiles, and it will particularly come in the form of charges and punishments. Note that they use the legal system to commit judicial murder. The evil hatred will be cloaked behind justice and the judicial system. 
the lawbreakers will twist the law to convict you as criminals and felons. But again, this hatred will hail not just from the world and false religions, but as he says, rather brother will betray brother. Fathers will rat on daughters. Kids will call the Gestapo on their parents. And this family betrayal and hatred will even be unto death. A wife will take the stand to ensure that her hubby gets the noose. And this family hatred is both literal and ecclesiastical. Fellow saints are our brothers and sisters. This is why we read Micah 7. As a sign of the last days, or one of the signs of the last days, is that true believers will be betrayed and assaulted from within the church. As with false teachers, the apostate church and fake saints are the most painful form of persecution. And with this, Jesus answered that expressed but unspoken concern of the four apostles. They wanted to know the signs to escape persecution and trials. But our Lord says, no doing. As saints and servants of Jesus, suffering will come in the last days. Not in every place, per se, not every generation equally intense, but the true church will be hated for Christ's name. Jesus tells you like it is. You will be hated for my sake, he says. We are called to live in peace and love, but this will be met by hatred. And this is surely current, for there's no shortage today of loathing and hostility for the true gospel and the whole true teaching of Scripture. But even in this, Jesus imparts to you the grace of courage. Note how he describes how we will be hated and persecuted in the same language as he predicted his death. Betrayed by a brother, drugged before a high priestly council, charged by a Gentile governor, and delivered over to death. This was the cup of Christ. He suffered all of these first and with hotter intensity for our salvation. Our lot of suffering is our being like our Savior. We experience nothing other than what Christ first endured for your eternal redemption. And no matter what we suffer, it will always be less than Jesus. Therefore, if Jesus endured the cross, his love and strength is yours to endure whatever he has ordained for you. Indeed, Jesus kind of piles up the encouragements and graces for us here. First, he says, as we stand before our accusers for his sake, it will be a testimony to them. Testimony has legal force. When the world charges us as wicked criminals, our words about Christ testify back against them. Our testimony declares Christ as king. It acquits us as innocent in the court of heaven. Earthly judges may condemn us, but the one at the right hand vindicates you. Testimony also calls the world to repent or be judged. Our true testimony will be evidence that God uses against the world in his judgment. When the world 
abuses the true saints by the judicial system, we often feel small and powerless. And yet our helpless form speaks testimony that contains the very power of heaven and the righteousness of Christ the Lord. Secondly, Jesus tells us that the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. The persecution and hatred lobbed at the truth and at us comes to us in the process of us heralding the gospel to every nation. Suffering arises as the church carries out the Great Commission. And heralding the gospel is one of the sweet joys and highest privileges granted to us. To see lost sinners saved is for the angels and for us to sing in joy. The gospel truth are the most beautiful words that can echo in our ears, leap from our tongues, and warm our hearts. Every Lord's Day, we join the worldwide church to proclaim the name of Christ. This is a supreme delight and honor. Sure, it's a duty, a job required, but it's pure joy. And realizing this makes suffering for it a much lighter thing, much less scary. If pain comes to you in a job that you hate, it's miserable and unbearable. But if hardship happens in a job that you love, it only encourages you to overcome and push on. This is another grace of courage from your Savior. Thirdly, the Lord emboldens us by the Holy Spirit. He says, don't worry what you will say, for the Holy Spirit is the one speaking, not you. Now, this does not mean we are inspired or infallible, yet it does mean that we are not alone, and the Spirit would use us to say exactly what is glorifying to God in those dire and difficult moments. The power and the word of the Spirit are with you, and the Spirit is working in you. You depend not on your own strength or courage, but you rest in the powerful words of Christ's Spirit poured into your heart. Finally, our Lord equips us with the hope of salvation. He says those who endure to the end will be saved. Here there's a play on the end. The end links back to the ultimate end of verse 7. We are called to endure until Christ returns on the day or the final day of the Lord. Yet this end of verse 13 follows on the heels of being put to death for Christ's name. In this way, Jesus colors our death, even our execution as criminals for the gospel, as our salvation. He paints the final day of judgment as our day of salvation. Thus, the false judgment of the world and the true judgment of the day of the Lord both become salvation for us in Christ. This is the sweet grace of Christ's righteousness imputed to you. Being justified in him, no one can condemn us, for God is for us. Yes, we must endure in the faith. We cannot let our faith swerve from Christ. But the love and redemption of Christ has justified you, and so there's no more condemnation. Your death is your salvation. The final judgment is your resurrection.
This is the truth of Christ, the one and only Lord and Savior. And it is Christ's discernment and wisdom for you so that we all might patiently endure through all the world's deceptions and wait patiently on our Lord. Thus, may we heed this understanding of Christ so that we might endure until the end for his eternal praise and glory so that he would come quickly. Amen. Let's pray.